Um, today's text is from Book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. I am reading the text in Bangla, which is the seventh most spoken language in the world. Pakru Polo Otashongider Asia Prodeshita Blikorte Dilena Tokantara Farugia O Galatia Prodeshe Shomosto Jaga Galen Pore Mushi Arshimana Eshe Tara Bithunia Prodeshe Jetachestakulen into Isa Ru Tada Jeta Dilena Ejona Tara Mushiar Moto Die Croa Shorechalen Rather Bella Polo Acta Dorshuna de Glen Macedonia Prodeshe Acton Log Dariata Keminati Korabolche Macedonia te Asia Madesh Hajokurun. Polo e Dorshan Dagbar Por, Ambra Macedonia te Jabajot not Okone Prostotolam, Karamra Bustapalam, Macedonia log der Kache, Mosiher Bishoe, Shushang Batabli Karajone, Allah Mada Dekachin. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Tassin. Oh, good morning. Church, thankful to be with you, honored uh, to be a member and humbled to be one of your elders, and I welcome you to the season of fall this morning. As the temperatures uh, are now driving a little bit downwards, you know, one of the things that I loved about this morning's worship is I love that we sang in Spanish, and it's a reminder that most of the Christian churches got up this morning and worshiped in Spanish, not English. And I love that we had Tassin read our passage because there aren't enough Christians in the world and services in the world that are conducting their services in Bangla. And our hope and our desire is that more and more would. <clears throat> One thing I want you to do is to take your Bible, go to Acts chapter 16. As you're turning there on your device or in your written word, it's a good thing to remember of what you have and what you hold in your hand. This is God's word. You are all that it says you are and that you have all that it says that you have and you're called to do all that it calls you to. How precious and how priceless it is. And as we consider our sermon text, you, well, wherever it went, there, Paul and Silas made a conclusion that God had called them to preach the gospel to them. And I would imagine as, as we're going to work through some of the rest of the chapter that they never would have imagined Paul and Silas, that it would have included a really rich lady or a poor slave girl or a middle-class prison guard. I would have never imagined they would have concluded that when God called them away from Asia and up to Europe, that would have included some of the highest class, a girl with no class, and a blue-collar, middle-class man. You see, what Paul and Silas were expecting, God gave them much, much different that we'll find out as we work through this passage and as we open up Acts chapter 16 and that they didn't fit the mold. They didn't fit the mold of how they thought God would use them or where God would use them or if the way that they were best to be used or when they would be used, where they would be used, or even if they would be used. 
and that God might do the same for you. He would break your mold of where you think you're used, how you think you're used, if you'll be used. I'm assuming there's no way that Paul would have thought that down by a river in a city that couldn't even muster 10 believing men to form a synagogue that he would join in a prayer meeting that would result in a wealthy woman and her entire household converting to the faith. I'm assuming he had no idea that a slave girl would call out over and over again for many, many days and kind of miscommunicate exactly who he was or what he was, and an exorcism would result in freedom for that young lady. And I can't imagine that Paul ever expected to be thrown in jail or maybe an earthquake would come and that he would be asked a question by the least likely of individuals, how can I be saved? These are all ways as we turn our attention to this text and as we lean in. And we might be asking ourselves this question, that if you were to have a dream and have a vision and you had a man or a woman confront you in that vision that said, come over and help us when you were planning to go somewhere else and you were to be called to uproot where you were to go for your life or in that day, or in a conversation, or through an email, or what you do at a red light, or with your mind, or with a comment, you might be asking, could I answer that call? The question is, is I don't know if you could. I don't know that I can answer, could I answer that call? Come. Would you help us in Europe? I know your plan is to go to Asia. I want you to come to Europe, to Macedonia. And most of us think as we read through these stories that maybe Paul and Silas in those moments with the slave girl or the rich lady or the middle-class man, they made really good decisions in those moments. And I would say, probably not. It's probably made days earlier. In that dream, it seems like they made a decision that helped seal the fate of the slave girl, the rich woman, and the middle-class man. But I would say no, even before decades before they made a decision. And some of us are asking and wondering, could we answer the Macedonian call? And you will not heed the calls of the Macedonian man until you've answered the call of the commission from the God-man. That's what it boils down to. That's why they answered. That's why Paul and Silas were so pliable and flexible and able to break their plans and make new decisions because they were already broken decades earlier. You'll have Macedonian calls, moments, conversations, friendships, but they'll always be hard and they'll never be easy unless you've embraced the commission of the God. Jesus Christ. And these men had. That's why the Macedonian call was an answer. It wasn't a question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we turn more and deeper into your text, Father, I do ask that even now, got to believe believers that are holed up in Gaza and Hamas tunnels that you have 
thrown in tunnels and in trenches, believers that for the first time, other hostages or Hamas members or Palestinians are hearing the gospel. And that's what you planned. And that's what they have embraced because they've accepted your call. And we trust in Bangladesh, and we trust in the Southern Hemispheres, we trust in our own city and in our own hearts. God, please, we pray that you would fish for men and women, foreign-born men and women, through our own lives and hearts. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we talk about this story of the man of Macedonia, and we think about the context, I think a, a great summation of Acts chapter 16, as we look more into the text, it just reminded me of Matthew 4, 19, when Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in every circumstance that Paul and Silas had, none of the people that ended up coming to faith or were, were released and enjoyed freedom, I don't think they ever intentionally pursued them. As we'll come to find out, they didn't pursue the slave girl or the rich woman or necessarily the middle-class man who was the prison guard, but they simply were faithful in those small moments. Follow God. And what did God do is he made them fishermen. He brought the catch to the hook. And then what ended up happening is that God reached the lost the woman from Thyatira, the slave girl down Philippi, the jailer, he reached them not by bringing people of the same class or culture or language family together and having conversations with them. He brought about their freedom and conversions through cross-cultural encounters, not monocultural ones, cross-cultural encounters. God reached the lost not by bringing uh, casual and comfortable situations that could be obeyed, but he saved when it was personally inconvenient for Paul and Silas there by the river. When it was publicly or socially risky to perform an exorcism and when it would be physically costly to submit to Jesus by staying in a jail cell after an earthquake had happened and the doors had been blown open. And yet what we will find is that in every single occurrence, of these cross-cultural encounters, they happened when either Paul and Cyrus, Silas were praying or were on their way to prayer. That's significant. Every single time they're on their way, they're not thinking of mainly being evangelists, they're thinking of being followers of Christ. And every single time that someone is freed or comes to faith, they're either on their way to prayer or they're praying, this would be the statement that I would have to sum up where we're going this morning, that God saved cross-culturally in surprising ways through the submitted lives of his servants to simply pray and obey. God saved cross-culturally people of different classes, different language families, spiritual backgrounds, socioeconomic levels. Don't just think that because you're different God might not reach those in our city through someone who is very different than them. That's how he works. That's what he's doing. 
God saved cross-culturally in surprising ways. He brought the fish to the hooks, and he did it through the submitted lives of his servants. I love what we're going to find out that the slave girl says. She says, these two men, over and over and over again, she followed Paul and Silas through the city and said, these are slaves of the Most High God. Now, what that was being communicated to that audience probably wasn't what Paul wanted communicated, but one thing was evident is that they were enslaved. She was too. She gets freedom. Paul and Silas are going to be thrown in prison, but they're enslaved to Jesus. And more or less, are we slaves to Jesus? The quintessential New Testament term for who you are and for who I am is bondservant. Do I have a submitted, laid down life where I'm laid down, my preferences are gone, and I'm a slave to Jesus? That's what makes the Macedonian call so easy. It's because they've embraced the call of the God man. And what we'll find is that they made small obediences and God granted them bigger moments of obedience. And they had small moments of obedience when no one was looking that led to big moments of obedience when everybody was. And you don't get to the big moments without the small moments. That's what we find here. And that certainly God wasn't changing and moving apart from prayer. Now what we're going to find is Acts 16 is a list of firsts. It's an exciting passage. It's a list of first, the first evangelist, the conversation, the first convert, the first baptism, the first household church. Where? Where was it all of these first on the continent of Europe? Paul wanted, and Silas, they wanted to go west. God said, I want you to go east. And what we've got to find ourselves in the book of Acts is it's not just kind of a boring travel log of events, but it's clear that God is fulfilling his redemptive plan geographically in the narrative of Acts. And we're going to see that here in the next graphic. But one of the ways that he did that was through visions. God gave us visions in the Old Testament. He did to Abraham when he was making his first promise of his heir. He gave Abraham a vision. When he wanted Samuel to be a priest, he gave Samuel a vision. Jesus took three of his most prized disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration for a vision. And then there were evangelistic visions. If it weren't for God giving Ananias a vision to go to Saul and direct him and to bring him into the faith, we know that Peter was sent in a vision to Cornelius' house that the Gentiles could come to faith as well. And then we finally have here in Acts chapter 16, the vision of the Macedonian man. And maybe you're asking kind of like me, Why don't you have visions? Spurgeon draws a connection off of what we think about during the day with what you dream about. And as I I, I read some of his commentary on the passage, I was struck. I was like, I've never had a dream about the lost. Ever. Ever in once of, of, of my dreams or what goes on in the night in my head has anything to do with the lost. 
And I thought it's because I don't spend a lot of time of my day thinking about them either. You dream about what you think about. Paul and Jesus daydreamed, I'm sure, a lot about the lost. And I seldomly, hardly ever do. So as we think about this idea of the lost, let's just remember about where Paul and Silas were going. They left Antioch and they said, we're going to go visit all the churches on the first missionary journey that we had planted. And we're going to work ourselves there through this area. If you see on your map where it says Antioch, is that even viewable? Can you see that? Just kind of southeast of Thyatira. And they wanted to go into Asia and Jesus forbid them. They wanted to go to Bithynia and, and Jesus said no. So they, 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 they wanted to go east. God said west. Then they said, can we go northwest? And God said, no, west again. And they finally meet this man in Macedonia who says, why don't you come over here? And as we talked where we are in the book of Acts is Acts chapters one through eight are, are mainly God working in Jerusalem. One through seven and then eight through 16, he's in Judea and Samaria and the great persecution broke out in Jerusalem, actually through Saul and, and the believers were spread out regionally as far as Antioch. And then kind of 16 onwards, we get this picture of the ends of the earth and all that it's about. And what I want you to see is that these are all the New Testament churches that are, have books named after them and where they were located. And you're going to see three of them right there in Thessalonica, Corinth, and Philippi. They're on the European continent there. You're going to see Rome as well, and that's come, but with Southeast Europe. But what I want you to see is that on Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, when God is calling the families of the earth and they're brought in on Jerusalem and right before he releases his Holy Spirit and for the gospel to be preached in the languages, I want you to notice where they're not coming from. They're not coming from southeastern Europe of all the places that were mentioned because God had a day when southeastern Europe would be reached and it was going to be decades later. Those are all of those places that had yet, that were called on Pentecost, and yet we see clearly not where Corinth, not where Thessalonica, not where Philippi are, because God had another day, a future day when that was coming. We're reminded in Romans 10, 14, and 15, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God sent his vision to the servants of Paul and Silas. But for us in the 21st century, he hasn't mainly sent us visions of people needing help who are out of town. But he has given us actual foreign born needy people in our town. Migrants, refugees, they're living in our town. They're not across the seas, they're across the streets. And we don't need someone from Macedonia saying, come and help. You have those that are foreign born right here, right now, four blocks away. And they're not saying, come and help. They're saying, here I am. Right here. In Boise per capita, 
second largest, most diverse refugee city in the western part of the United States. And I got to believe that's why you're here. For just that reason. So we go back to our text. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia up north. You saw that on the map, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. This was so convicting as I read it, and I thought, am I really, do I have a, a life that's forbidden? Do I have a life that, are, that certain things just aren't allowed? That God and Jesus can say no to my comforts and my conveniences and my plans and priorities and habits and ambitions that I'm a slave. I love what Paul and Silas exemplify here. Like Jesus forbid me. The Holy Spirit did not allow me to do something. And I'm not just talking about sin. I wish there was more forbidden sin in my life or, or unallowable sin or unwanted sin. But I'm talking about no people in circumstances. We draw the lines. I love St. Patrick in about 400 AD. Commonly on St. Patrick's Day, that's probably how you know them. But he grew up in Britain when he was a child. He was abducted and kidnapped and taken to Ireland for six years as a slave. He ran away and he got away and he had a dream in his teen, late teenage years. And the dream was like the Macedonian man, come over to Ireland and help us. He virtually had the same dream of his own admission. And he said, I must go to Ireland. And he spent his days living it out in Ireland. And because he did, he led over 100 thousand Irish men and women to say yes to Jesus. A lot of yeses could be in your future. They're in my future, but am I willing to say no? Or to follow God's no? I love this quote by Jack Andrews who writes a commentary in the book of Acts. God often changes our plans, interrupts our schedules, interferes with our will to get his will done in and through our lives. David Jeremiah says the only way to be able to say yes to the place God wants you to serve is if you to say no to the places that are not his will for you. When God calls you to serve, make sure you serve for the right purpose. Make sure you get to the right people. By all means, get in the right place and whatever call, whatever God tells you to do, do it immediately. And so not only are we saying no, are we saying yes to the same things God is and what I need to hear is, Andrew, quit hesitating. Quit hesitating in opening your mouth and walking down that street and reaching out to that person, asking the neighbor their name. We did a tour through Boise yesterday and visited different places of worship and overlooked our city and prayed for it and ate at restaurants and got to know our surroundings. And I got sent a picture of a member of our church sitting in a tea room having a Turkish coffee with a little bit of baklava dessert. And I loved it because she didn't hesitate. She acted. She lived according to her conviction. She said yes, even though her plans were quite possibly 
different. And you ask yourself, can I say no even to good things to say yes to God? Can I say no to my comforts, my conveniences, my plan, my schedule, even my family, or to my hobby? And some of us are asking, well, where is my Macedonian man? And he's right behind you. He's right behind you. Maybe if you got out of the way for a moment, you could hear his voice. Can we make decisions solely for the sake of another? That's why you've been saved. It doesn't take a tribe of people to call you away from your plan or what you were intent on doing. It took one for Paul and Silas. One man to say, come and help us. They were controlled by the love of Christ. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. You don't have to live for you. It's so refreshing. It's so freeing. It's so right and appropriate. That's what God has done. He has freed you from problem that you can be absorbed in Lydia's problem and in a slave girl's problem who has no name and in a prison guard's problem. Verse 10, and when Paul had seen this vision immediately, I like the movement immediately, he sought to go into Macedonia. And then you've got this word concluding. Sumbabazo is the original word. Sumbabazo, it means to knit together to pull together by force. I'm going to take what I've seen and I'm going to reason and I'm going to respond and produce results. And I look at my life and I'm not, I just don't, I don't have enough Sumba Bazo. Have you made any great conclusions for your life? Lines that you draw in the sand that are etched in your heart. And the call gets easy. Because you have already embraced a commission. You've already embraced that you're owned. You're not yours anymore. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read. That's... But this, quickly we'll hit these three scenarios. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate by the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And the one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, which we already saw on the map, the seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now I would tell you, uh, it must have been pretty hard for Paul and Silas to be faithful. They've been called to Europe. Lord, you must have really good things in store for us. There was even a man in our vision. And now we've gone to a place of prayer. We can't even find 10 men to form a synagogue. We're going to go by a riverside. And the only people that are there that we can talk to are some women. And the one that's going to respond 
isn't even European. She's Asian. That's where we wanted to go anyway. She's from Thyatira, where we just were. Why are you bringing us here? Then we're on our way to evangelize a city and a slave girl starts annoying me. That wasn't my plan either. And then I'm thrown in a jail. I love how God works this story and what he's doing that God called Paul and Silas to be faithful even when it seems to be collapsing around them. And what did Philippi become? The first church in Europe, one of Paul's most faithful supporting churches, and it produced biblical studs like Epaphroditus. God reached Lydia out of town by someone not from her background, hometown, socioeconomic class, gender, or language family. They had nothing in common except that God caught both of their attentions to save them. Remember when God caught Saul's attention? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it you, Lord? Lydia's attention was caught in the same way. God reached a slave girl in her hometown, not out of town, by someone not from her spiritual background, hometown, socioeconomic class, gender, or language, family. They shared nothing in common except that they were both slaves, but to very two different masters. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling, says Luke in Acts, verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, because Luke's with them. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Most of those in that city would not have represented that with the Lord Jesus Christ. They would probably have represented the Most High God with an Athenian Greek God, Apollos. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, in turn and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour and her owners were frustrated. Not their plan. Not their plan at all. The girl who had no name and no status and no life was finally free. Last time, God reached a middle-class, uneducated Gentile jailer through an upper-class, educated Jew. They shared nothing in common except that they were both converted while imprisoning Christians. You think you have nothing in common. You might have more in common with someone not of your own culture than you do with a family member who lives in your same house. Here's the passage. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Second time that's happened in the book of Acts, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. If you're the jailer, you're worried. Because the jailer, in verse 23, was ordered to keep them safely ordered keep them where they are in the cell 
When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud cry, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Cross-cultural encounters because of the submitted lives of Paul and Silas to obey and pray. That's why we have Acts chapter 16. And it's a beautiful, attractive picture of what your life could look like, of what we want our lives to look like, of how we want our lives to have an effect in this world. And it can result in questions. How could I be saved? That you could answer and be obedient to that call in that moment. To when Lydia, all she needed was an explanation because her heart had been primed. And so what do all of these occurrences, scenarios share in common? That God reached the lost through cross-cultural encounters that bridged all types of economic, ethnic, and religious barriers. That God reached the lost through Paul and Silas submitting to Jesus no matter the cost. And that God reached the lost through Paul and Silas's commitment to planned and persistent prayer. They prayed and obeyed. And the Macedonian call was an easy call because they had already embraced the call of the God-man. And when we begin to daydream and pray and think about the lost in our lives, maybe God might give us a vision. And he gives us better than that in the form of migrants and refugees that live among us that are foreign-born. They don't say, come and help us. They're just saying, here I am. Don asked this a couple weeks ago. He said, how can we be a local or a neighborhood church? It was a great, great question because that's what we are. We're not a mega church. We're not a large church. We're a humble, small, neighborhood, local church. How can we be a church in the neighborhood among the people among refugees who live four blocks away at a housing development down there on Leadville from Afghanistan and Syria and Iran and Iraq. One of the ways that we thought that we could do that is that we're going to be a local neighborhood church that affects the neighborhoods around it by praying together in our local neighborhoods. There wasn't a synagogue to go to in Philippi, so they prayed by a river. We just thought maybe we'll go pray by the river in Boise because that's where the refugee housing development is. And so if you're part of a life group here at Table Rock, we're going to spend just one of our life groups half of the time walking the green belt around where the housing development is, where some of the least reached people are in our neighborhood, and just pray. And I wouldn't suspect that God would bring you a Lydia encounter or a slave girl encounter, or a jailer encounter in the way that Paul and Silas had, maybe not this week or next week or in a month, but I'm sure I've got to believe that after a couple weeks or after a couple months or within a couple years, God will answer those prayers. That we would pray among our neighborhoods down by a river and ask God to save the world. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and for your word and all that you are. God, we pray that you would answer our prayers, prayers that are prayed in Acts chapter 4. When the believers were imprisoned, God, would you continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and produce signs and wonders that are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God, would you use our life groups, one life group from each life group at Table Rock, one time before Christmas to begin building a fabric and a culture that we would be open-handed to trusting in what you might do in our neighborhood. God, we ask it, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we end our services by taking a moment to remember and of the sacraments that Jesus gives. The one that we practice every Sunday is that of communion. And we pass just as Jesus passed on during his last supper with his disciples before he was raised. We pass the bread and we pass the cup. And as we just remember this idea of being jailed or punished or enslaved and asking the question, should I partake? Is this meal for me? Should I remember and practice what's getting ready to be handed to you is that if Jesus has taken your punishment in your jail time, has taken your, has been a sacrifice for you, a substitute for you to free you from your sin and you've trusted in him, then take as the elements go by. Well, I'll lead us to partake all together. And if you're like, I'm not sure, or that's not where I am, just pass the elements along and maybe, or before the elements get to you, you would pray and receive and trust Jesus and be asking, God, how can I be saved? And it's repent and belief. Repent in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in his name. I'll call the communion servers to come down. They will then serve the elements and the worship team might come up or not uh, and lead us through a little bit, but we'll at least have a time of silence as you ponder your own sin and the provision of Jesus. And then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in a moment to take communion together.